he could like hang in the air and then come down directly on the beat. He, he was dancing in between the beat. And then I started listening to him and I was saying, wait a minute, his horn is his feet. Because he's duplicating a lot of the rhythms that the drummer was playing. He was trading fours with the piano player. And that completely blew me away because I could hear him phrasing just like the piano player was doing. That is Charles Fun along with Sanifu M. Wananchi and Brene Ali. And this is the Tap Love Tour podcast. Tap. show. I'm your host, Travis Knights. What is Tap Love Tour? Super simple. It's all in the name. I want to tap dance. I want to experience and spread love. And I want to see the world. Tap Love Tour podcast. The podcast is usually exclusive to audio, uh, available wherever you get your podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe, give us a rating, all that good stuff, yada, yada, yada. This episode, however, is extremely special and is actually a part of Brene Ali's Baby Lawrence Legacy Project. Brene is researching and contributing to her newly adopted city of Baltimore by helping that community to remember one of the most underrecognized and prolific jazz musicians of the 20th century. I'm talking about Baby Lawrence, a tap dancer. Tap dancer? I, I thought you said jazz musician. Listen, I'm not gonna argue with you, I'm going to give you time instead to process while I read from this book compiled by the late great jazz impresario Pananaka de Koenigswater. It's called Three Wishes. Uh, for years, uh, as the story goes, Pananaka gathered three wishes from some of the most important jazz musicians of her time. And here's what she gathered from the jazz musician Baby Lawrence. Check this out. Wish number one. That show business, not Negro or white show business, but show business would come back like it used to be. Wish number two, that the American people would have a better appreciation of art. Wish number three, that pretty soon again, you won't see a presentation show without a jazz tap dancer. There's little out there known about Baby Lawrence. There's an invaluable short documentary called The Jazz Hoofer, directed by William Hancock. There's an iconic album called Baby Lawrence, Dance Master. There are uh, vanishingly few clips of him on YouTube. Several mentions with sparse details about him in print, including most famously in Miles Davis's autobiography. But, but for an artist with his level of influence, the details of his life and character are largely unknown. The guests on today's podcast all have personal experience with Baby Lawrence. So we're in for a treat. Uh, before we start, <clears throat> I want to tell you about one of the guests uh, who showed up a bit later after my initial introduction. His name is Todd Barkin. Todd Barkin uh, is a club owner, producer, and artistic programmer. His bio reads like a who's who of jazz. There are some people, you know, that move through the world making connections that breathe life into culture itself. Todd Barkin is one of those people. He's a Grammy award-winning producer, a lover of jazz culture who produced his 
first jazz concert in 1964. I could go on, but we have a lot to get to with this podcast. Without further ado, let's let's just jump right into the conversation. That voice always makes me, everything makes me nervous. Here we go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Travis Knights. We have an incredible episode planned for you today. I'm over the moon about this. Quite frankly, uh, I feel wholly unqualified for this. The guests we have today are each powerhouses in their own right with a passion for jazz, culture, (laughs) community building, and revolution. Sanifu M. Wanachi is the founder and principal organizer at the National Center for African American, sorry, for African Communitarian Culture. The organization aims to generate progressive dialogue among African American women and men, focused on the necessity for an indigenous and autonomous national community organization. The organization aims to train a, a permanent circle of national community organizers who are conscious capable and committed to the construction of a coherent system of the most advanced social, economic, and political organization within the African-American population. The organization aims to promote and contribute to the Pan-African project towards a liberated, unified, and socialist Africa. Charles Fun is a teacher with 45 years under his belt, the the marching band director at Dunbar High School, guiding the hearts and minds of young people. Uh, Our collective future has been in his hands for years. And from what I've seen of his work, the future looks bright. These these incredible guests uh, were curated by my co-host for today. Brene Ali. She's one of my favorite tap dancers on this planet. Her connection and contribution to the form are out of this world, whether on Broadway, directing festivals, creating music as a singer-songwriter, blowing up clubs with her singular signature style, touring the globe on stage or in classrooms. Brene is a force to be reckoned with. I wasn't kidding when I said I was unqualified for this conversation. My, my nerves are shot. You may not be able to see it, but I'm actually shaking underneath the table. Uh, the, the reason behind this meeting, the connective tissue that binds our guests together is a perspective and knowledge about one of the most prolific tap dancers to ever lace up, a lighthouse beacon for the form and jazz culture, the man, the myth, the legend, Baby Lawrence. So I'm going to step out of the way now and ask Brene Ali one question, just to kick things, just one, Brene, just mm-hmm. to kick things off. Uh, how, how, do, how did we get here? How did we get here? We got here because I live in Baltimore now. I moved here in uh, 2018. And, um, you know, I, I was uh, thrilled to kind of be in the holy grounds of where baby Lawrence was born. First and foremost, um, my husband is a trumpeter. So he was, um, you know, called to be here to take over the jazz department at, at Peabody. And I saw this as a great opportunity to bring the dance here because I, I noticed that there wasn't a lot of people shuffling as much and with the legacy that I know of baby Lawrence, you know, I, felt like there was a lot of holes in um in the process and so or in his story and and i felt like there's a lot or there's something about the gap in the the story about his time in baltimore that's missing in his bio a lot of it for me and even in the documentary um 
you know, so I just felt like, how can I, what, what can I do when I <laughs> ask these questions? Or even when I go somewhere and sit in on a jam session, there's an elder that would always approach me and ask me like, do I know who baby Lawrence is? Hmm. So, you know, I'm aiming to like bridge this gap. And I was talking about this at a, at a archival workshop and was offered an opportunity to be our social justice fellow for um, the Billy Holiday Center for Liberation Arts uh, to continue my studies and to go on that journey and then find ways to engage community uh, while also uh, creating new compositions uh, or whatnot. Um, so now I'm here and then I went on to the next phase to seek more money to make it you know, to help me do this work and to bring people together and to help this community to remember. And so as I would go about talking to people, um, you know, and, and actually Mr. Fun, you know, came up to me and told me first, like, oh yeah, I know I've seen baby Lawrence before. And again, like I said, the elders would just come and speak. And, you know, I know that that is, you know, the oral tradition of, of how this art form works is really important that we're able to, preserve these stories and to to talk so that's how we got here <laughs> and um and then you know just you reaching out and saying that you wanted to do something <laughs> and, and and let me take over your podcast was like okay boom this is perfect this is in alignment let's use this platform let's go and as a matter of fact todd barkin is calling me right now <laughs> <laughs> perfect timing <laughs> Perfect time. Let me call him right back. <laughs> I'm going to pause for a second. Okay. <laughs> you know, with this project, again, I, and I'm, I'm very curious to look at what was happening, you know, from, like you said, the 1920s to, I think he died in 74. So, like, that whole time spirit of what was happening here in America, why was he, you know, I'm sure he wasn't unique to be, um, a, you know, a very talented individual who, um, you know, was caught up in drug addiction, really heavy in and out. But, you know, um, but then it also makes me sad because, uh, you know, I know that the people in the industries knew this, but he was still in and out. And then, you know, it was just, it was, it was heavy. And, um, and I always imagine what if he was still here? Because I think, when he came out of prison, he had cancer, and so he didn't have much yeah. time left. Can't get the audio. I can't get. Oh, we, we hear you. you. <laughs> I don't feel bad now. <laughs> I hear. I hear. I I hear Eileen too. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. So Ty, we we were just. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, thank you. Travis Knight is, is my partner in this process. This is his uh project, the Tap Love Tour, and we're coming together to talk and um, talk baby Lawrence, Baltimore, America <laughs> between the 20s and the 70s, jazz, um, all those things, and whatever memories you may also have. Uh, each of you, I brought you all here together because. You know, each of you came to me at some point and well, I'm just now meeting Brother Sanifu, but each of you have some glimpse of a memory of actually, you know, either being in the same space with, with baby Lawrence or knowing him personally. 
So I thank y'all for being here. Oh, thank you. Anyone can just jump in. Um, what is your memory of Baby Lawrence? Well, I have, I have a specific memory that's kind of illustrative of of the challenge we have in in getting the getting the uh, jazz you know, jazz tap dancing and dancing recognized. Uh, you know, as much as it can be and, and as it should be. Uh, I I found out that Baby Lawrence, I used to own a, a club in San Francisco. The original Keystone Corner was in San Francisco between 1972 and 1983. And during that time, uh, I, I knew, ba I met Baby Lawrence, I believe, to the best of my memory, uh, in the, in the mid-60s. Um, I was introduced to him by Max Roach and uh, I met him and, and got to hear him dance and watch him dance and learned a lot about his history at, at that time uh, and, I, and I got to hire him at Keystone Corner it was in the middle 70s I don't remember the exact year I'm trying to do a little research now because I want to put it in a book of memoirs that I'm working on but I found out he was going to be in the Bay Area at a certain point. Uh, Charles Moffat told me, the, the famous drummer that was with the, uh, that, that played with Ornette Coleman. And uh, so, so he, could you, could we stop? My wife has got her computer on and it's, it's driving me a little crazy. Eileen. You have your computer speaking over here. What do you mean? Your computer's on. There's a sound on. Is a radio or something? Hold on. Sorry. Okay. That reminds me of the commercial where the guy goes out in the hallway and pulls a fire alarm and everybody leaves just so he can have access to his computer. <laughs> well, anyway, that's a little domestic bliss there. <laughs> so we have, uh, we all experience that. Oh, yeah. One's former. So uh, it just so happened that that particular week that, that baby, that baby was going to be at the Keystone, his biggest, his premier uh, tap dance performance at the Keystone Corner. Pharaoh uh, Saunders was the main headline artist. Ooh. So we, I, it was like a double bill. You know, he was going to open for, I didn't even ask Pharaoh Saunders permission because, I mean, it's such a great honor and a privilege and a, and a treasure to have baby Lawrence play at the Keystone that you know, I didn't even think about asking anybody's permission to, to be blessed by, by this man's great art. And what we did was we built a tap floor, just like we did for Brene when she first played at, at Keystone here in, in, uh, in Baltimore. We built a tap floor just for Baby. And uh, not as big as we have now for, for Brene, but with a little tap floor. And we figured out how to mic it. And uh, Charles Moffat uh, volunteered to play drums. Uh, 
you know, in a company baby on the, on uh, play brushes. And so, and it was a, it was a wonderful presentation actually, but before it happened, you know, Pharaoh flew in and it was going to be a Tuesday and a Wednesday. The baby was there for the beginning of a week with Pharaoh Saunders. And I was doing a little sound check and Pharaoh walked in. He came in from the flying in from the airport and he, he saw, he, he heard us doing it. He, us doing a, uh, hold on. This is my air conditioner. Hold on. Yeah. Wawa. Thank God. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll wait. I'll see you when I'm. I'm doing a, a Zoom call right now. Okay. Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, we have an air conditioner out. That's urgent. Okay. Just the wonderful <laughs> club owning. Okay. So, uh, so all of a sudden, Barrow Saunders flies into a rage with me. He says. I don't want no, I don't want no vaudeville on my show. I don't want no vaudeville. Mm. Charles, what do you do in a situation like that? Anyway, so he says, I don't want any vaudeville on, you know, he said, I don't want, uh, I said, well, it's just, a, I, I said, baby Lawrence is one of the greatest artists in American history. And he's just going to do a few minutes before your show. And I thought, you know, I thought, I thought, you know, I didn't even think that it would be a, a problem. I couldn't even foresee a problem about something like that. But he was all upset. And I tried to give him a quick history lesson. This is the the night of the show, Tuesday night. Now, in, in back in back in days of yore, we actually had. What happened? Oh, we still hear and see you. There we go. So. Uh, so I had to do a quick history lesson with Pharaoh Saunders. I said, please trust me. This man is one of the greatest artists who's ever graced our music. And this is part of the roots of our music I come from dance. And and uh, Charles Moffat spoke to him. So we kind of assuaged him for a moment. And uh, so we started the show with Baby Lawrence and 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 Charles Moffat on drums and somebody else came and played a little saxophone at the same time with baby and baby gave a magnificent show. And so, and then after that, Pharaoh Saunders became one of the biggest baby Lawrence fans in the history of <laughs> Fear of the unknown. He just didn't know. He just, yeah. Yeah. You know, Get that vaudeville off my stage. Yeah. Yeah. Get that. Mystery. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 that part. That part that you see when when he said that get that part. vaudeville off my stage, he was really referring to minstrelsy. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, he just did not know. I mean, he didn't know anything about the history of tap dance. Actually, when when it came when he knew yeah. all John Coltrane, but uh, and. And Pharaoh was an Arkansas blues man, so he had he had the perspective of the blues. He had the perspective of the avant-garde. He he knew a lot about Ben Webster and Coleman Hawkins, but he there were aspects of Amer our music that he he just didn't know about. I mean, not because he didn't want to know, or he didn't you know 
he came to respect it a lot and and actually learned a lot more about dance, you know, in the rest of his career. He made it a point to to learn quite a bit more. But that was that was a great moment in my baby Lawrence history because uh you know, get that vaudeville off the stage. Wow. Wow, that's a phrase, huh? Mm. But I mean, okay, so so that part, that phrase, that vaudeville, that ministry, that black face, like that still is attached to the stigma of this dance today. We even hear it in hip hop, right? And so um I was just gonna bring, you know, and see if 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 anything was coming up for you, brother Tanifu or Mr. Fun, and in, in that in that type of conflict within our own our own black community, you know, we have our our own art forms, but then you know the traumas and things that have happened within the cultures of the movement and the music, and how there's been you know like a huge misunderstanding. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think that uh, one of the major problems is that it's a lack of exposure, uh, pretty much like jazz is concerned. But the whole thing behind African dance and tap is even more because uh, if you don't know about it, you're setting yourself up to hear somebody else's preconceived opinions of it. And I think that uh, when I was at Dunbar, one of the things I did was I was carrying the jazz band out to all of the elementary schools and all of the middle schools and doing a history of jazz from like Africa to uh, blues to uh, the whole history of jazz up to where it is now. Because if people don't know about it, they're going to be ignorant about it, and they will basically succumb to somebody else's opinion. Uh, I think that one of the things that we need to do also is to do the same thing about tap and incorporate it in jazz in some way so that the kids will know about tap and how it came from the African slaves doing our body dancing also like there's a thing that Bobby McFerrin did where he hits parts of his body that needs to be explored also but you have to educate the kids in the schools so uh they won't grow up with that preconceived notion and it's funny in that a guy with the expertise and the history of Farrah Saunders I'm not faulting him but the fact that he had that opinion based on how he was raised, mm-hmm. more than likely the uh, black face, the Al Joseph thing, the cake walk and all that. But uh, I think it's because of a lack of exposure that uh, there needs to be a history, not only of tap, but also of the whole thing of jazz as far as how uh, the Broadway dancing versus the black hoofing or tapping what upper body motion is all of the techniques of it because therefore we are creating an audience for tap but god knows you might have the next Maurice hines in (laughs) elementary school or the next sammy davis jr or the next 
Bunny Briggs or Sister Stan Man Sims. Let's go. Let's go. Middle school. And it's got to be nurtured to the point where, well, the other problem is music isn't in all of the schools. And music is a priority for as far as education and consciousness. And I feel that the same thing needs to be done with tap. You get supposedly the history of music. You should have the history of dance also so that all of the students, black, white, Latino, Indonesian, Asian, the whole nine yards, so that it will be a thing of culture, universal culture, not only the European culture that's being taught in the schools and the colleges and that we see on TV now. Yeah. Yeah. So you um, you have an interesting memory of a baby on a mission, you know, coming into the schools when you were in high school yeah. <laughs> teaching. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. you know, I know for me, based on what we have seen of the documentation of his you know, of his work wasn't just performance. He was an advocate. He was in these streets, like literally in these streets, yeah. even though he may have been doing stuff he had no business doing, he was still shuffling and then educating people on what he was doing. Um, so what was that like for you? Uh, or, you know, either both of you, brother, brother Sanifu, you, you passed him in while you were locked up. Like, what, what was that for you? Well, the first time I, I, I met Baby Lawrence was in 1970. And uh, this was at the, I think it was at the formation of the Baltimore City uh, Model Cities Cultural Arts Program. Ah. Uh, working out of a church uh, on, on, on Packer Street in downtown Baltimore called St. Mary's. And I, I don't, the church, the church is no longer there, but the, the big park there now that replaced the church. But uh, I saw, I, I met him, and I, 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 I told him that I recalled seeing him on television in 1967 with Sammy Davis Jr. And he was surprised that somebody would remember that. And then he told, he began to tell me that uh, he began to like really give praise to Sammy because he said that I was not supposed to do that. He said Sammy brought me on stage, and you know, and and asked me to dance, and and but. You know, but I was not supposed to do that. I was just standing in the wing. And uh, he said that, you know, but that was that was the that was like uh, the, the goodness that that Sammy that Sammy uh, uh, displayed uh, to his fellow performer. I, I but we we uh, didn't see. Wow. Each other a lot. <laughs> uh, we intermittently met uh, because of my political work uh, with an organization called the Soul School during the late uh, during the early 1970s. And uh, we'd see each other. But the time we met when I was in jail, <laughs> I got arrested because I was organizing for African Liberation Day in 1972. And mm. uh, I, I happened to appear on television because I was, not, I was not supposed to appear on television. But I arranged uh, a television spot for someone else connected with the group. And they didn't show up. So... Uh, Wally Daniels, who the person who interviewed me. <laughs> I remember said, that name and him. Yeah. Yeah. He said, well, since you're here, you have to do it. And so I did it. And the following day I was arrested. 
because my name was well known in the in the police circles for, <laughs> because of my activism. And so uh, during when I was uh, locked up, they put you in this 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 holding cell. And when I was when they put me in the cell, I was standing next in I was standing at the gate. And when uh, uh, I, I began to hear someone call me from behind, and when I, I said, "Who is this?" <laughs> when I turned around, it was Baby Lawrence. Wow! Mm. Wow! So it, this is deep. You said 1972. I'm going to share my screen because there's this article that I found in the Afro News. Um, Okay, and so this article is so interesting to me because they it came out after he died. And so they talk about, you know, his history, where he was born and 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 you know, influences and whatnot. But then they talk about how in early 1972, a call came to the Afro from the Journal Star in Peoria, Illinois, asking the Afro magazine looking for someone to locate Baby Lawrence, the world's greatest tap dancer. A week later, September 16, 1972, the Afro received the following letter from Baby Lawrence, who was serving an 18-month sentence in the Maryland House of Correction. He wrote, reading the Afro this week, I was thrilled, though to an embarrassing degree, to learn that someone was looking for me. Um, and all the way from Peoria, Illinois, I have not been there since the 1940s, when I was booked at a club called the Talk of the Town, that was a thrill. The embarrassment is because of sluggishness of the will, wrong choice of thought and disobedience to the law, I have created some grave and precarious conditions for myself as I am now in the Maryland House of Corrections. Um, and then he goes on to talk about he's waiting you know, to be on release for parole. He got some television work that while he was in there, he was still dancing. So he was dancing while he was in there. Um, and he, he uh, says, like, if you need to know anything about my whereabouts, call the Left Bank Jazz Society. Um, and so I understand that that is an organization that's still present here in this community, correct? Um, what, the Left Bank? Left the Bank. Left Bank Jazz Society? Well, barely. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're barely. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, so we've done some... You know, they, we painted their logo on the inside the Keystone, where it proudly resides today. Uh, and you know, we've had uh, some alumni meet, you know, ad hoc alumni meetings at the club, including the opening night we had. We had several members there, mm -hmm. but uh, it, it, it they've kind of right now the main thing that they've been doing lately is putting out, helping to facilitate some recordings being released from the left bank. Mm. Is, that, is that the best of your recollection, Charles? Uh, from what I understand, yeah, because I remember uh, coming to Baltimore, going to Morgan, and the left bank jazz society was situated at the famous ballroom on Charles Street. On Charles Street, yeah. And, yes. and uh, I remember going there because every Sunday they would have concerts there of like named people. I had the opportunity of seeing Duke Ellington there, Freddie Hubbard several times, Dez, Clark Terry. They would 
bring these name acts in. And for me, it was perfect being in school because they had free sodas, they had free potato chips, and they had free pretzels. So I could come in there and hear Hubcap blow the roof off and fill up on the chips and the and the pretzels, and I didn't have to pay for it. Plus, there were a lot of jazz musicians in Baltimore, like uh, Jimmy Wells, Arnold Sterling, Mickey Fields. They would perform there also, and the place was like always packed. They would serve food. They had fried chicken. They had cake, potato salad. Guys were selling the uh, records there. So pretty much every Sunday, I was there at the left bank because I had a professor in school who was a jazz. Uh, he pushed jazz, and he would come back out to the campus and pick me up and carry me down to the uh, left bank. So fortunately, I was able to hear all. A lot of them. Uh, I know that after the famous ballroom closed up, they started doing concerts that happened because I went they out had there a whole there. ballroom. Roy Harvey. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, they had a whole. They, they rented it. They rented. Yeah. Mm, uh, yeah, because um, so other articles that I found that like they they hired him to do a performance some of those events, and so. You know, and in 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 those articles, it was some of those names that you mentioned. So, which is one of the reasons why I'm kind of bringing it up. Like, what do you remember of the Left Bank Jazz Society? Because apparently, it seemed like they did so much to like really yeah. care of people, like they were taking care of people. You know, because yeah. if, yeah. if he was locked up, they were helping him get out. It's apparently he had a friend, a woman uh, who was like one of his childhood friends that. In that article, they said um, she kept a lot of his letters that he wrote from prison. And um, he talked about how he converted to Islam while he was in there. So I'm, I'm, you know, I want to know more about that (laughs) just because I think that's good information, especially for a young black and, you know, person coming up into this art form to have an understanding of the evolution that he was trying to seek within himself. You know, and right before we recorded this, we were talking about decolonization and what that process is. You know yeah. what I mean? So, um, so yeah, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I just kind of well, my, my imagination just got even bigger on what that was like. So it's a ballroom, and then I, I I was asking Doc. I was like, so what was happening with the dance? Like the dance. Just became seemed like less less presentational. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, I know I know that the left bank itself was very uh, part of the community. I mean, it was a community organization, and the 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 reason that we have a five o'clock set at the Keystone to this day is in homage to the uh, relationship to the left bank. Because Sunday afternoon seemed to be a very uh, harmonious time, a very uh, apt time to have uh, jazz music performances in Baltimore. Oh yeah, it was. Started the it Keystone was. out originally. I was going to have shows at seven thirty and nine thirty on Sunday, and within within one week, I had flipped over the nine o'clock show to the 9.30 show to be a 
five o'clock show because out of deference to that tradition of the Left Bank Jazz Society. And from then on, since we the week the week after we opened, by the by the second weekend we were open, we had a five o'clock show that it, we consider to be our left bank set, you know, the 5 p.m. show. So oh. it, it still it still uh, resonates, you know, to this day and age. But the left bank, from all all the evidence, and I don't, I didn't, I only played there twice. I I was only there twice. Charles has probably been there, you know, scores and scores of times. Because <laughs> you were based here in the, in Baltimore. But I came through with Rasan Roland Kirk's band uh, and played there with, with Rasan's band playing percussion and second keyboard. And then I came through with Grover Washington's band playing uh, second keyboard. So, but I was only there twice in, in my life. But but it was a remarkable. I just remember all that fried chicken coming up those stairs. Oh yeah, yeah, fried chicken. But, <laughs> They had a, uh, they would also sponsor an annual jazz cruise, and they always hired Richard Groove Holmes for it. And I, I don't know the ship or the boat they used, but I do know that it was always packed. But uh, Left Bank was the place to be on Sundays uh, for the jazz concerts, because there is no feeling in the world of, not only seeing the performance, being able to talk to them, but being in the bathroom and hearing Clark Terry walk in behind you and say, use beer department. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so... um, yeah, I, I'm just blown away at <laughs> this conversation for sure. Um, so, Mr. Fun, you also you, you share with me at another time, but you know, for the sake of this this conversation, I, I love to hear what your reaction was when he came to your school when you were in high school. <laughs> well, he didn't come to my school. I was a sophomore in high school, and um, I had just seen Baby Lawrence. Uh, on the Hollywood Palace because Sammy Davis Jr. was the the, uh, host and I had heard of him and after I saw that uh, my band director got a notice that they were having a week-long jazz clinic at Montgomery Junior College and that uh, Baby Lawrence was going to be there, Charlie Mariano and a couple of other people in the area so uh, I convinced my parents to pay for it. And uh, it was about maybe three or four of us who were in the jazz band uh, that would go up there like eight o'clock every morning and just practice and rehearse for a concert that was supposed to be given uh, on Saturday night. And uh, they had a drummer in the area. I believe his name was Eddie Fife. He had teamed up with Baby Lawrence, and they were going around the clubs in uh, Montgomery County and in Gaithersburg doing uh, performances. And I said, wait a minute, I've got an opportunity to go to a jazz clinic for a whole week 
practice, learn about jazz, learn about improvisation, and hang out with baby Lawrence also, I would have walked. I would have walked the 85 miles or however far it was. And the first thing I did when I got there was to look for maybe Lawrence. He wasn't there the first day, Monday. He wasn't there Tuesday, but he was there Wednesday. And I had the opportunity to uh, sit down beside him and have lunch and uh, basically hang out. And it amazed me because uh, he was talking about who he had danced with. He had danced with uh, Ellington, Basie, Art Tatum. And he said that I really don't consider myself as being a tap dancer. I consider myself being a bebop dancer if you will, because he told me he would listen to the recordings of Bird and Diz, and he would uh, pat right. dance along with those. And he would like trade fours and basically do a whole chorus of just tapping. And I hadn't seen that since I saw you do it at uh, Keystone and at UB. I said, wait a minute, this is, <laughs> this is, the, this is the personification of Baby Lawrence all over again when you were trading fours with Sean and then trading fours. That's what you said to me. <laughs> That's exactly had, what you said. <laughs> you had a whole solo of nothing but tap. And I could hear the different rhythms that you were doing. And I could hear you. You were duplicating a lot of the things that the musicians were doing with their notes, you were displaying the same rhythm by dancing. And I said, damn, shades of Baby Lawrence all over again. Ooh. But uh, Baby Lawrence was a remarkable person in that he was very amenable and he had no problem talking to, to people. And what basically bothered me was I was the only student there <laughs> who was in his brain. I mean, every time I saw him, I would go up and talk to him, and he would just talk about life, what he had been through. And uh, then we had a rehearsal where he was, uh, it was the dress rehearsal for the performance, and there was, there were two big bands which had been formed. The band of professionals, which was the band directors and all the musicians in the area. And then there was the band of the high school kids who uh, they had organized. And I remember that Bill Potts was there also, the composer and arranger who had done some things for uh, Hinton. But in between those two big band concerts, they had a combo plan that featured our Baby Lawrence, and it was the Eddie Fife Trio. I remember the piano player was a guy named Bill Goldstein. I don't remember the uh, bass player, but uh, they brought out a oversized bass drum. And uh, it had a wooden tap to it. And uh, I know the size of the board that you have used at UB and at uh Keystone, but I think this one was a little bit smaller, but it was amazing what the hell he got out of that small area and how he 
because I was watching him during rehearsal and everybody was thinking he's going to fall off of that. He's going to, and he would like dance up to one side, right on the edge, and then dance up to the dance all the way to the back and up front. And half of the time, he kept his eyes closed, and it like freaked me out. The other thing that amazed me about him is like it seemed as if he could literally hang in the air and suspend himself. And I hadn't seen that done by anybody except like the basketball players like Elgin Bale and Earl Monroe, who would be faking guys out of the he could like hang in the air and then come down directly on the beat. He, he was dancing in between the beat. And then I started listening to him and I was saying, wait a minute, his horn is his feet. Because he's duplicating a lot of the rhythms that the drummer was playing. He was trading fours with the piano player. And that completely blew me away because I could hear him phrasing just like the piano player was doing. He was he was just remarkable. But the thing that bothered me, it, it was like I was the only person who was up in his face all of the time bugging him because it seems as if all of the other kids had no idea or they basically didn't care who he was. And it was funny, I think, that uh, there were only about maybe four or five Blacks there because I was uh, only Black for my school and there was a Black that was a trumpet player and there were a couple of Blacks in the uh, professional band, the uh, bass player and maybe one of the horn players. The whole thing that bothered me is here we have an icon of America. I mean, it's like being at a jazz clinic with Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie or Duke Ellington for a whole week. And he was basically going unnoticed, even after the dress rehearsal of him tap dancing on uh his bass drum and that was the most phenomenal thing that i had ever seen we did a uh a big band arrangement of count Basie's tune cute which is actually a a drum solo but instead of the drum playing in those breaks he would tap dance and if you close your eyes it sounded as if a drummer was actually playing solo but he had about maybe 15 or 20 more different drums that he got a sound out of <laughs> I, mean, <it's, laughs> I mean it's like i know i know that this is a cliche <laughs> but that is an experience that i will never ever get of hearing him dance with a combo because I didn't think of him as a dancer. He was just another musician that was in the group. And then when he came back and did cute for the finale, that was it. So, wow, thank you for that share. Um, that that kind of raises another question. And I know I'm, I don't want to keep you all too long, but just this might be- I ain't got nothing to do, I'm retired. I ain't <laughs> I had to take a shower before I did this. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I got a question for for Brother Sanifu. When you uh -huh. were working with on this the cultural 
this cultural revolution what does that what did that mean or what does that mean to this conversation and, and even thinking you know the landscape of baltimore what what does that mean in, into the efforts that you've been building all these years and and even for someone myself who's the younger generation and what can i you know kind of offer into this because i feel like it's a constant rotation like it's still happening and evolving now so the whole the whole concept of cultural revolution as far as uh uh, African people were concerned is that they was it was supposed to be the change of mind from the uh, colonial mind uh, to a liberated mind. And the two people who, who were responsible for promoting the concept of cultural revolution was Harold Cruz, whom I mentioned before, and Malcolm X. Uh, and, and as a matter of fact, I, I refer to this as the Cruz-Malcolm X thesis on cultural revolution, because they were the first to, to and, and by the way, uh, African people in the US were talking about cultural revolution before the Chinese. So, so <laughs> in, the, mm. in, the 19, in the 1960s. So it was only a few years before, but it was before. And, uh, but, and then in, during the 1960s, uh, uh, the concept of cultural revolution was again promoted after after Malcolm's demise uh, through uh, the Black Cultural Nationalist Movement uh, that was mainly promoted by Maulana Karengo on the West Coast. And he took up the uh, thought and practice of cultural revolution. And uh, many of us came uh, to understand the whole concept of cultural revolution by what he was doing with his cultural philosophy called Kawaita. And uh, but for me, uh, uh, and that uh, during the, the period during that time was what we call an ideological period, and mainly it was about social theory. Uh, but for me, uh, the cultural revolution would not be complete without uh, a social movement that would complement the theory. So, uh, uh, and that was one, one of the main problems we found that was faulty with uh, the social movement of the 1960s, particularly the Black uh, political movement, was that uh, they were more focused on, and, and rightly so, because that was an ideological period. They were focused on ideology more so than, than, than social organization. Mm. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, <clears throat> yeah, cause I, I, it's, it's interesting to hear that, how that came about, but then, putting these two words together now and what does that look like for today? What could that imagine what a cultural revolution is? You know, I, I feel like um, within my generation, we're like really you trying to embed like the practices of the art as tools of healing and being able to reconcile with our past a lot. Um, and so, you know, for me, this project with Baby Lawrence, this is what I aim to do through this process. Um, and also looking at, you know, a lot of the issues that, you know, plague our community. And, you know, one that's very, you know, not that unique to when we think about, you know, great artists who have drug addiction issues um who are in and out of you know the 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 criminal justice system um 
and then it's glorified now. <laughs> you know, these things are highly glorified in yeah. the culture as well. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, it, I, it's, I, for me, in celebrating baby Lawrence, it's like we have to be able to have these uncomfortable conversations too and kind of look at what was happening and what what can we do to try to transform this because um I, you know there's such a disconnect such a disconnect of the history of even within the generations um you know and even to hear you you know mr fun talking about like other people who just didn't know didn't understand i mean in the 70s for there to be a tap dancer based on my understanding and i'm sure travis you know we've been hearing from the oral story you know stories from the elders from his peers like slide and and uh you know um just the list goes on all those cats that came up in that time you know they all kind of like had to find their way in the 70s to still stay relevant um yeah. <clears throat> so also that I think also that uh, you were going uh, back on the idea of coming through the criminal system and being on drugs. And I think that uh, at that time, as it is now, they were using drugs as a method of compensating for what they were not achieving, not because they not because of their talent, but because of what society was doing to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like. The idea of somebody like Charlie Parker being in the club and he goes across the street and he sees this other guy who really isn't qualified enough to carry Charlie Parker's saxophone case. And he's getting all of the notoriety, he's getting all of the newspaper work, he's getting all of the ads and all that. And that can be frustrating. Plus, what they had to deal with, with the uh, police as well. I mean, Thelonious Monk went through a thing where he couldn't even drive through New York because the policeman would pull him over and tell him to open up his trunk. Mm. Uh, Miles Davis being beat up outside by a policeman because he escorted a white female guest out outside of the club into the cab. And um, Baroness, the Coneswater who served time in jail because she said that the bag of drugs that was found in the car didn't belong to Mark, but it, it belonged to her. So those are the circumstances that the Black musician has had to deal with during like the late 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And it was a method of just being able to put up with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a coping mechanism, right? And also, you know, where people were self-medicating. Um, and, but it's, it's, it, it's just, I guess when the narratives come out, you know, it's like we kind of disregard them too. Like, oh, they just was a junkie. You know, uh, I was yeah. reading this, this, uh, oral transcript that was shared with me from an oral history project at the Apollo Theater. That was one of the places where Baby performed a lot. And it was the conversation, um, you know, 
between the person who was interviewing these folks that that were, you know, that came through the Apollo that also like were looking at some photos and he would point baby Lawrence out and and they would be like, yeah, he was a drug addict, you know, oh, oh, he was just a drug addict. And then that's what the- sells the newspapers up. That's right. the only contribution that unfortunately we have to the art form. Mm-hmm. The same thing if Bird, oh, he was a drug addict, but that had nothing to do with his accomplishments to the American culture as far as the music is concerned. But that's what sells the newspapers, the drugs. Yeah, but it also like perpetuates this this, this like disposable, like it's like it's also like they just become very disposable as well, and so then dismissing the, them, yeah, yeah, it's like a dismissing. So you, the the story and the nuts and bolts of how he became that way gets kind of glossed over because nobody really talking about how he got there. Um, so you know that that to me, even just reading that letter where he talks about like, man, I had this issue. There was another letter that um, I discovered um that he wrote to professor marshall Stearns from prison and he had a whole poem called convict soliloquy and he's Mm. talking about being lonely you know and being out in the middle of the river wanting to die so it's like heavy mental depression that you know um that that he that he and i'm sure many black people were feeling during that time um so you know it's it's i i don't know it's hard for me not to want to talk about that because it has really taken a lot of our most precious people who did you know who has played a major impact on, but there's um, got to be there has got to be a venue so that people know particularly the youth, they know what these people went through, why they got addicted to drugs, and they still were able to manifest themselves into being innovators. Yeah, and he tried. And so that was the thing. Like, when I read that little last sentence, it was like the last sentence in that article that he had converted to Islam and he was working, trying to work with a, a, a program, the Dawn program, which I think was had, he was trying to get clean, trying, you know what I mean? Like to at least like learn that there was an effort that he was really trying um, to get to a better place. And, you know, and then he became sick. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much more we could keep going into. <laughs> I, um, I, I, this is, probably a good time for us to start to wrap up because I can go down some more rabbit holes. You guys have been such a a blessing. <laughs> I don't know, Travis, you I, I, you I just have I, I have I've if I can, I just have one question for each of you. Um uh can uh you know spending spending quality time with him, I'm just I'm just uh, curious about his uh his personality uh, who he was as a person uh mr fun you described him as being you know open open to conversation and and very giving um uh brother sanifu like can you can you paint us a picture of who this person was or your impression of this person well he was very open certainly mm-hmm. and uh uh he was willing to share what 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 he knew in terms yeah. of uh, 
his uh, his 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 view of life, and uh, uh, again, I you know I it uh, uh, we we really didn't have like a lo- a long conversation mm-hmm. because uh, I you know I I was on the run in terms of like in terms of the movement mm-hmm. and. Uh, and he was doing what he was doing, you know, in the street. So uh, uh, we didn't have like the, like extensive conversations with each other. Yeah. Yeah. But he was he was a very open person, and uh, he understood what I was doing, and uh, you know he didn't raise any objections to it. Uh, but the, yeah. Follow up question, and this is absolutely selfish. Not even selfish. It's um, I'm uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, doing my own work. I'm actually working on a show uh, with uh, Soul Pepper Theater Company called The Trial of Uncle Tom. And it's about my relationship with Bill Bojangles Robinson as a as a black man. And mm. uh, I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts of how we can exorcise the demons of minstrelsy, exorcise the demons of that that uh, that plague uh, the black perspective, blague, plague uh, black storytelling. Um, uh, do, do you have any ideas of how to move forward and, and not uh, cut off our nose to spite our own faces like we do with tap dancing? Uh, education. Education. Because that's why the powers that think they be are trying to ban books. They're trying to ban what's being taught in the schools because they don't want people to know the truth. I had an instance where I was uh, I was placed at a middle school over in Cherry Hill, which had two different cultures. It had the white people from Curtis Bay and the black kids from Cherry Hill. And the school was always in an uproar because of the two opposing forces. And I had to deal with that also. Fortunately, I was teaching instrumental music. So once I had all the kids in there and all of them were placed on the same exact level, they could realize that everything their parents taught them about white people wasn't true. Hmm. Everything that the black parents had taught the black kids about white people, it wasn't true. Hmm. We have to break down these barriers and the only way of doing it is through education and social media, which is why the Republicans are trying to control all of that. Because we do have a voice, but they don't want us to use that voice. I did that. Also, uh, it, we have to connect uh, the uh, personal with the collective in terms of the, uh, uh, the history of African people in, in the U.S in terms of our, uh, our striving to be liberated. And sometimes, many times in, in, in our art, uh, movies, some stage plays, uh, I, work yeah. in theater, I work in theater myself as well. And uh, that connection is not made. Uh, right. And right. Uh, I, I think uh, you look at the uh, work of uh, people like uh, Amir um, um, Baraka or, or the playwrights of the 60s like uh, Ed Bullins, uh, Aisha Rahman, uh, Ntozaki Shange, they were trying to make that connection 
between the personal and the collective in terms of uh, our social struggle. And I think uh, also August Wilson was doing the very same thing. Um, and we uh, have to uh, begin to understand one of the mistakes that we made in our culture, particularly you look at the NAACP, for instance, you know, they, uh, if their emphasis was a little different, uh, we could have achieved a great, uh, we could have achieved a lot more than we had. If the emphasis was on, was more on community, more so than just social injustice, then I think uh, it would have been, our, our struggle would have been much more, uh, 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 we would have been a much greater level than we are, than, we, than where we are now. And, and they can still make that change if they wish. But uh, that's the struggle that we're in. We, we've never made the, 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 the real deep connection between the personal and the collective. Now, that's not just in the art, but also in our politics. I'm going to have to chew on that for a minute. The personal and collective. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, the, Boy, that was a lot to think about. It, Tremendous. Tremendous yeah. Uh, something about baby Lawrence because, um, because I got to meet him through, uh, I have a little different perspective because I got to meet him through Max Roach. And, um, one of the things, uh, Baby Lawrence, he, with all his folksy quality, um, was also quite an intellectual and and a historian, and um, he had he had a very strong grasp of the fact through all his travails, personal travails and struggles, <laughs> that that he was an integral part of the the history of jazz. And, uh, you know, that, uh, and that was one of the things that he was striving for uh, all of us to understand. And I think it's our responsibility to, to uh, perpetuate that. In fact, even make it known. There's a lot of the, the audience now, especially younger people now, are, who are completely unaware of this, of the, of the, you know, the, the legacy, the living legacy that we're trying to perpetuate with with dance, and that so much of jazz drumming came out of of this dancing, you know, yeah. jazz drumming, and Rademacuse and 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 all the 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 apparatus of jazz drumming, paradiddles and everything else that goes on in jazz drumming. So much of that came out of these guys, you know footsteps that we're yeah. literally walking in their footsteps mm. and i think that that's and dancing in their footsteps even more particularly uh and aptly so yeah. and baby lawrence was was very he was a, a, a just a delight to be around because i mean of course i mean he was so replete with all i got to hear a lot of stories and and uh you know anecdotes about his life in, in music and actually i was while we were in in the middle of this exchange and i'm i'm been enjoying every word from from all of you um so much that that i realized how precious it was for me to have baby lawrence at the keystone because keystone corner which we're now celebrating its 
50th anniversary, this 51st anniversary this past weekend. Let's go. Mm-hmm. And it's been our first, it's 50th anniversary year, which we got to spend here in Baltimore with all of you. Uh, but it was, it was shortly after we opened that baby Lawrence, I believe it was 1973 that he was there because he passed away in 1974. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so how precious, you know, was right. association and uh, I, I, you know, for another day, I want to, you know, talk about some other dancers. Maybe we can do that. You know? oh, I, I feel I'm like you mentioned have... Groundhog. Yeah, he did. <laughs> I feel like... He did. He did mention Groundhog. Did, did you what? Tell me about Groundhog. What? <laughs> <laughs> Groundhog, I I was I managed the Boys Choir of Harlem in my in my uh, uh, perils of Pauline life. I, I I was the manager of the Boys Choir of Harlem in the 80, 1980s and early nineties. Uh, at, at the same time that I was working with Wynton Marsalis to kind of get the Chazel Lincoln Center off the ground, and um, Groundhog was on the corner playing dominoes. Uh, at 128th and Malcolm X. Uh, he was right there at the corner in front of the bodega playing dominoes. And I would pass that way every day going to the office of, of the Boys Choir of Harlem. And one day, you know, I, I turned the corner and this guy was dancing. And I hadn't heard that kind of dance or seen that kind of dancing in, in since I heard Baby Lawrence, you know, in 1973. So Groundhog was was on the street in 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 Harlem, and that was in the I moved to to New York in 1983. Mm-hmm. I started with the Boys Choir of Harlem in 1985. So that was in the mid 80s. So here we go again, you know, like 10 years later, I'm, I'm you know, talking to Groundhog. And uh, again, Max Roach uh, was was there, was involved there uh, because Max Roach had a real, uh, a real uh, relationship with so many of these dancers. And so much of his playing just evolved and, 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 was integrally related to what all these great dancers were, you know, the steps that they were doing. Mm. Max wow. Roach, you know, and Max Roach is one of the inventors of bebop drumming. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you can't, you can't separate this our, from our drumming. It, they're just one and the same, you know, yeah. it's, it's dancing with a drum kit. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Brene, yeah. do we have time for do we have time for two more questions? Um yeah, uh well also because I got a jet. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I... But yes, well let's let's get one in and I wanted to close with just a close out with a little recording cool. of, of baby. So you go for go ahead. Okay. So I'm just, I'm just gonna I'm gonna rattle them off and then then you know. Um, we spoke about, uh, um, you know, clubs, um, ballrooms, uh, the, the, the communities. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, like, about the nuts and bolts. Uh, like, how, what was the funding model for these activities like then? And what are they like now? 
also follow up question, uh, Mr. Fun, you know, you've been you've been engaged with young folk and shaping their minds. You're a musician. You understand how these things work. Can you describe the discipline that would that is necessary for a baby Lawrence to emerge? Uh, very few of the students that I taught how to play jazz or how to play an instrument were, inter were interested in playing an instrument because I kept hearing, I don't know anything about music. I don't know anything about playing an instrument. And I would always be taught by saying, what do you think I'm here for? And I think that a child's mind, be it elementary or high school, their mind is open for the most part. So if you can spend half of that time getting them interested in it, convincing them it's not as hard as it looks on television. It's not as hard as somebody has told you. We do it step by step by step. And included in that is the discipline that comes along with it. Dig it. Funding models. How are all these programs funded? How were they? How are they? Grants. Okay. Uh, pure luck. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best answer. <laughs> words of, Man, words mean, of wisdom from the master there. <laughs> I mean, fate, kismet. I mean, you know, I think love. Hmm. I think we, we can't discount any of those factors because there would be no Keystone Corner. There never would have been a Keystone Corner without any of those factors. I mean, mm -hmm. I didn't have any intention of becoming a jazz club owner or presenter. Or I mean, I was a musician. I still am. But um, I just, you know, I went to get a gig in, in uh, at a, a beer bar in San Francisco, and I was 25 years old, and I was playing piano with a... Uh, an Afro-Cuban band called Quani and the Quanditos. And we played Latin cover tunes. And I went to get this gig in this beer bar because we were we were working a lot. We were playing every bar mitzvah and dive bar and played for the Fillmore West opening for the It's a Beautiful Day and Ike and Tina Turner and Grateful Dead. And then we went to get a gig in this club. And the guy says, no, jazz won't work here because this is a beer bar and we need... We need liquor, hard liquor and, and uh, wine to make it work. Well, why don't you buy this club and maybe you can raise money and get a liquor license and, and maybe hire your own band one day. And that's how Keystone Corner started. Just mm. get a gig and, and, and knowing I had no funding. I had nothing <laughs> but a lot of love for the music. Mm. And the same thing happened here in Baltimore. I was awarded an, uh, an award as an NEA Jazz Master in April of, of uh, 2019. There hadn't been a jazz club in this town in 30 years of any consequence. And I was in D.C. and I got that award at the Kennedy Center. And the, the head of the awards dinner happened to be a guy named Robert Weedmeyer. And he and I became friends and we tried to start a club down in DC. We couldn't find the right place. And he remembered at the last minute, he owned a place here that was going bankrupt. This place here was going bankrupt, which is located between Fells Point and Harbor East. Muscles uh, bar. I used to go there. Muscle bar, muscle bar and grill Baltimore. And yeah. 
it was kind of going out of it was it hadn't been open for a year <clears throat> and we came and looked at it and we decided to revive jazz in Baltimore together and but there are there are other jazz venues here yeah Caden Castle and, and yes, you know. but I mean I'm talking right, about but, it, but there used to be a lot more so it's, it's nice to have like more than one or two <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, like that's that's what the beauty of it for me. No, there there should be. I mean, yeah, absolutely uh, preferable and desirable and needed that that you have more than one. But there wasn't a full time jazz. Caden's Castle is open, you know, periodically, mostly mm -hmm. on Saturday nights and and right, uh, right, yeah. music has a lot of different kinds of music, and it's a little different than a jazz club. It's it's a it's a very important and critically important music venue. Right. Uh, that's not to dismiss its importance. What, oh, just, for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm just been really since Ethel's and then they tried. Blues Alley was up here for about six months. But it's since the late 80s, there had not been a real full-time jazz club. And mm -hmm. so... One of the, one of the uh, things that we're talking about in our organization is how can we use the arts as a source for building an economy within the African-American community? And one of the things that we're talking about is consolidating or 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 or, or collectivizing the uh, the theater, the music, dance, film into a a, a a a common structure, much like what the movie studios used to do back in the uh, golden days of Hollywood, where they would have uh, all of these artists under contract. You know, musicians, actors, dancers, and they would make these 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 big musicals, and and uh, they didn't get funding. I don't think from anyone. I mean, they were able to raise the money uh, through their production, and I think that we're, we're well. We're talking about how can we do that on 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 the very same thing on that level. How can we collectivize our art in terms of? Uh, instead of separating the music and the theater and the dance, et cetera, that we work together <clears throat> as, a, as a structure mm -hmm. and to build a continent. Well, when we have, you know, we'd have to set up a whole other discussion about that because that, that's a, a very practical and very, but very uh, involved kind of discussion and, and an important discussion to have. Yeah. And, and, and uh, as a person that's that's you know still trying to i mean basically i've been working at keystone corner for room and board for four years i mean you know there there are times when i work all week and then i have to you know help subsidize the band being played here um so it, it's it's a very it, it no matter what happens you got to have people who are committed enough to to making it you know making it a re that dream a reality and and one of the one of the challenges I'm finding now in terms of you know finding people to work with here is just to come people talk a lot of stuff but when it comes to spending the time and putting in the sweat equity uh, that's we need as many committed people as we can as we can put together 
I mean, that's, but that, that, that this, we've gotten into a whole other area of uh, discussion that's very important <laughs> and, and, and very uh, constructive. But yeah, it, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you asked that question, uh, Travis, because we're talking about all this legacy and history. And then you have to also talk about how you're going to preserve it and, you know, also set up, you know, set up a model so you could pass the torch to the next person. Um, you know, and so I, I agree that bridging and bringing the, all the different forms together of music, because that's what I do. You know, I'm like, I embody all of those things because that's been my understanding of like, the culture when it comes to music, dance, especially being uh, a person of African descent. And so that's what I'm hoping that you be Blake would do because yes. they got the classrooms there. They've got the venue there. They've mm -hmm. got enough people associated with it. But then there's an age old thing of funding and all that. But I shouldn't say this, but I don't mind doing it without pay because the culture has got to be passed on or else it is going to be lost. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, but I just think we, I think there's enough resources out there that we don't have to keep doing stuff for free. Um, I mean, I, 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 I hear both because you know what I mean? Like it's necessary so that, that, not letting that be the driving force, but also keeping it as a focus so that there can be sustainability, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and so by bringing, you know, music, dance, theater, you know, and being able to have these productions and these, you know, spaces that can that money will go towards this person, you get some, you get some money, you get some, it's like, like you know, it's kind of, like this shared experience. Um, so, you know, and I, and I think that, that the separatist concept of, of the art forms is, you know, very European concept in the first place. And so trying to bring that back together um, is really just, you know, trying to find a family nucleus and, and, you know, to me, in my opinion, I'm just trying to be able to be that bridge. And I think it is definitely important um, you know, because just for like, I know there's a swing dance community here, right? But like, they I've played there, for them a couple of times, yeah. You know, it's fun. Uh, Mob Town Ballroom is a great space, to, you know, and there's a lot of swing dance that go on there. But I'm like, tap dancers, I push tap to be in there. It's like, we should all have something where we, you know, got these things yeah, going. And I was like, the vibrancy yeah. of it. Um, so. Yeah, man. So I, I thank y'all so much. Can I can I close out with this little recording? Um, since we just so we can hear brother baby. This is a recording that was shared with me, and we're not gonna listen to the whole thing, but um it was a recording. Uh he was live in let me see, hold on, let me just be correct. Live I think he was live in Berlin, uh the Berlin oh, okay. Jazz Festival. This is in nineteen seventy-three. He was playing with Ooh. Duke Ellington. Oh yes. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the tap dancing that I'm about to do is in the vein not to watch, but to listen to, as <laughs> I call it, jazz tap percussion. And I'm sure after you witness this performance, you'll agree with me that tap dancing is percussion. percussion.
usual little blues from the Charlie Parker era. Thank y'all so, so, so much. This has been such a, a fulfilling <clears throat> hour or so uh, building with you men and talking and sharing your your memories and your experiences. Um, man, I'm, I don't know. Go ahead. Go ahead, Travis. <laughs> yeah, uh, all I got is, is gratitude. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I kind of I kind of want to. Uh, Oh, the last thing I'll say is this to everyone listening. I, I think it's appropriate. You're welcome. <laughs> like, what, what do you want? Uh, yeah, my, my, my cup runneth over and, you know, hopefully um, um, I haven't turned you off of, um, you know, uh, this, this discussion and, and podcasting and, and balding black men and, and tap dance itself. <laughs> Um, because, you know, if anything, like to be continued, just, there's just so much, um, yeah. you've, you've all mentioned, you yeah, have, I have several anecdotes. I'm like, yep, what, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> there's, 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 there's a lot to discuss uh, an important figure. Brene, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for doing this work. <laughs> oh, oh. Extremely important. Like the, just the, the beginning, <laughs> just the beginning. And, and I can feel like the, the richness of tap dance itself. Uh, being restored because of this work. Thank you. Thank you. Anything. I'm at your beck and call. Anything you need yes. ever. Hey, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm in your pocket for life because of this. Uh, you know. <laughs> Dang it. Thank you. Uh, oh, to be continued. To be continued. Oh, oh, yes. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard and want to support Tap Love Tour, then join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Travis Knights. Uh, Patreon is a service that allows people to support artists and creatives that make content that they enjoy or benefit from. If you're considering joining, know this. 
you will be contributing to the creation of new work. Tap Love Tour goes beyond this podcast. TLT is a production house that creates pieces, music, dance, vlogs, documentaries, all related to the dance. In fact, we're currently in post-production on a documentary funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and Tap Love Tour Patreon subscribers. It's called Restorative Culture, Jonathan Morin. It's coming out real soon. We're super excited about it. Uh, I have plans for collaborations that are now achievable over time with this Patreon model. Uh, you're all essentially uh, Tap Love Tour micro-producers. So if you want to help to contribute, if you want to join the Tap Love Tour family, head over to patreon.com slash Travis Knights and join at any tier that makes sense for you. We'll be back next time with another wonderful guest. Until then, much love, one love, tap love, peace.